0: I'm Nick Newton, joined by Will Miles. Welcome to Stand Up and Holler. On tonight's episode, we'll break down the latest news from Billy Napier about the offensive coordinator position. Bill Carr and Alonzo Johnson, two giants from the 1980s, passed away this week. We'll talk a little bit about their time at the University of Florida. The Big Ten and SEC are forming an alliance. Where does that sound familiar, Will? And then uh, the Dartmouth men's basketball team uh, was ruled by the National Labor Board to be employees of a university uh there are some distinctions there uh, with it being a private school versus a public entity and we'll get into some of that uh, to close out the show so for those of you who are really fired up about the national labor board uh will uh be sure to stick around (laughs) to the other show but it does have constant it could have consequences uh beyond the ivy leagues and we're seeing tennessee and virginia in a locked in a court battle with the ncaa right now so it's just it's interesting to to see what direction the ncaa is headed here and that that could have an impact uh will before we dive in everybody get used to hearing about the magazine between now and the month of june or july maybe august just just the rest of the season tell us about the magazine will yeah, man, we got the 2024 Read
1: Reaction Preview magazine. Everybody saw a couple of years ago we had a digital-only version. Last year we released a hard copy version. We're doing that again this year, but we're going to be doing it a little bit differently. Um, we're hoping to get it distributed down there in Florida in stores like Walmart, CVS, Publix, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, A thousand different stores is what we're aiming for, but we need some sponsors to help us pull that off. So we're looking for people to come and sponsor um, – sponsor the magazine. You know, we've got, we've got a media kit. We can send it your way with pricing um, help us out. Now the goal overall is to start sort of um, chaining these together to have a, to have a Florida reading reaction magazine and then eventually expand to the other programs as well. Really all the power five programs, though there's not really a power five anymore, but all the Alliance programs as, as the, uh, as the dust settles. And look, if you liked it last year, awesome. Um, You know, show it to somebody, you know, who's got a business. And if you need us to show it to us, let us know. And uh, if you've got a business, we'd love to hear from you. I think, you know, one of the cool parts is we're a small business. We have the ability to sort of mix and match to make sure something meets your needs. So reach out and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll make sure it's a win-win. The last thing we want to do is have you advertise and it not be a win for you. So, you know, reach out to us and we'll make sure that it's a win and uh, hopefully a win for us too.
0: I heard on Andy Staples the other day they were calling it the Core Four, the Core Four instead oh, of no. final five. <laughs> Isn't that like the
1: Yankees? Didn't they call them the Core Four with, <laughs> yeah, with Jeter and Posada he, and those guys?
0: Yeah, he put that he put that out on Twitter. I think he said that was a poll, and that that's what came back. The Core Four. Was, uh, we'll see was, how long the ACC is standing, and and this Big Ten SEC alliance. You know, who knows? Who knows? It's just all going, going to
1: out. eventually be called the SEC. So let's just let's just do it that way. <laughs>
0: Well, well, uh, Billy Napier, uh, we're recording this show on Wednesday night. Uh, Billy Napier did have a press conference in Gainesville uh, for National Signing Day. We've talked about a lot of the players that are coming in, though. So the, the interesting observation that, that you had made from the press conference is that there was a signal that no external offensive coordinator would be on the way. There was some talk about potentially Russ Calloway, the tight ends coach, the young tight ends coach who people are very high on. Uh, There's some talk about him getting more responsibilities, but there was not really any real detail provided by Billy Napier. And I think he indicated that he intends to take that into the spring. But from my personal vantage point, I would love to see a coach on the staff step up and take over as much of the play calling duty as possible give Billy Napier really the ability to just have that 360-degree angle on game days and not be so locked in on the play sheet. But that's my opinion, Will.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we talked last week about the special teams coach not being on the field, and that was an area of contention for you, not having him on the field. Um, Napier believes in having two offensive line coaches. That's the way he's done it. He thinks there's an advantage there. Um, giving up that responsibility to Callaway, they talked a little bit about that today. Um, but, look, the offensive coordinator, what you'll hear, and I heard this today when I posted something on Facebook, or on 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 X, about uh, – about my opinion on this is that Napier's doubling down on what he believes and whether you agree with what he believes or not I do think you have to respect the fact that he's going with with what he believes in now what that also means is that if it doesn't work out then it falls on him right because he's the one who's executed this vision and if the vision is a mess, well, then Napier's the one who gets to blame. But that does mean that if the vision's successful, then we need to give him a lot of credit. So if Florida's got a top-20 offense this year, then we need to sit here and say, look, we were wrong about needing an outside voice to 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 make changes. The other thing he said during the press conference today is that Ron Roberts is going to sort of be almost the de facto defensive coordinator. And that Austin Armstrong is going to call the plays, but there's going to be an awful lot of input from Roberts in terms of what's going on. I'm fascinated to see what happens with that because now you've got sort of two voices in the room. How are they going to work together? How is that going to, to mesh? And beyond that, you know, look, coaches are guys who have egos. And so, um, you know, one of the reasons I think Napier is hesitant to give up play calling is he likes having the play calling, not just because of his ego, but because it sort of keeps him engaged with what's going on on a day-to-day basis I'm fascinated to see what happens with Roberts and what happens with Armstrong as well, because again, coaches have egos, coaches want to be promoted, coaches want to be able to take the credit for turning something around. If this defense all of a sudden becomes good, Roberts is the guy who's going to get the credit. Now I'm not sure Florida fans care who gets the credit, but does Austin Armstrong care who gets the credit? And that's going to be one of the sort of um, you know, one of the headlines, I think, throughout the year, um, given what Napier said today about those two. So uh, an interesting press conference, considering that the uh, that college football and the powers of being college football have completely ruined National Signing Day in February. It used to be a holiday where I considered taking off the day of work. And even if I was at work, I was sitting there hitting refresh, refresh, refresh <laughs> on whatever website I followed at the time to know who was who was signing. I mean, I can remember, you know the the 2006 class and just refresh refresh to see who all was coming in make sure the faxes from Brandon Spikes and Tebow and Harvin all came in and then just Urban Meyer sort of adding to that class over and over and over again throughout the day um you you just don't have that anymore the drama is all in December when everything else is going on in college football as well so um so if nothing else the press conference gave us a couple little nuggets and um I'm fascinated to see how it turns out again I think um I would probably do things differently but I have a lot of respect for somebody who says this is how we're going to do it and just decides to do it that way. We'll see. right? If the offense sits there and is 50th again in yards per play like it's been the last two years, well, they better have a top 10 or top 20 defense because otherwise with the schedule um, it's going to be lights out. (laughs) And and that's just sort of the way things are at this point is they're putting an awful lot on – You know, they're betting an awful lot on defensive improvement unless the offense can take some major step forward. And, you know, I haven't seen evidence thus far that the offense is going to take a major step forward. That was always the hope for the offensive coordinator, but obviously doesn't look like we're going from outside the program. And hey, we'll see. We'll evaluate, right? That's that's uh, you know, read and reaction. That's what, that's what that's about, man. As we see what's going on, we make some predictions, and then we tell you why it did or didn't work. And if this works out, I will be the first one to give Napier a whole lot of credit for sticking to his guns. In fact, I'm giving him credit now for sticking to his guns. It's just that he's going to be responsible for whatever comes out of those weapons <laughs> when, when we go watch what's going on on game day, whether it's good or bad, Billy Napier at this point, there's no doubt. He's the one who's responsible. And uh, you know, that'll sort of seal seal his fate one way or the other. And if things go really well, then, you know, I think Napier can be in Gansel for a really, really, really long time. If things go poorly, then uh, obviously uh, you know, there's there's a contingent and I think I would probably agree with them that that you know you're better off making uh starting over
0: yeah one uh one point about Billy Napier in the offensive coordinator conversation uh winning some ball games eliminates this conversation entirely it just you're not going to hear it anymore if you win a few ball games well
1: you mean you got to beat Arkansas yeah that that, that would be the way to go um, you
0: know you can't have
1: a bad loss every year so especially with this schedule right the 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 Arkansas loss five straight losses to end the year leaves a nasty taste in everybody's mouth and now we're staring at five straight losses to end the 2024 season if things aren't going very well either um and that's just the reality of things. Is the schedule's brutal? Scott Strickland, for some reason, scheduled Miami as a home game to start the year when Florida State is a road game. So, and you've got UCF on the schedule as well. So you don't even have the two cupcakes you normally have. Um, UCF they have what uh, KJ Jefferson. So we get to see that guy again after he absolutely torched Florida last year. So he's not going to be intimidated playing the skaters defense. He's done that before. So look, I think. Florida's got a really rough schedule to, to roll through, but you're right. I mean, look, if he goes eight and four, I think we're all going to sit there and say, wow, what an improvement, like, wow, what, what progress has been made. If he goes five and seven, I think we're going to sit there and go, well, you know, you've missed a bowl game two out of three years you've been here. And the one bowl game you did go to was an embarrassment and they got destroyed. Um, You know, what, what are we really holding on to? And then obviously the floor is, you know, you go two and 10, three and nine, and you gotta have some really, really hard discussions at that point. So you know, we'll see. I mean, again, I, I think um there is no doubt that Billy Napier deserved a third year and we're gonna be able to evaluate the success of the program at this point pretty thoroughly because it's his players, right? From the transfer portal, from recruiting. He's manipulated his coaching staff in multiple places. In multiple years, right? I mean, that Roberts is essentially the third defensive coordinator that they've had in in three years. Um, you know, there's been a lot of manipulation, a lot of change at this point. This is Billy Napier's program, and 2024 will tell us a lot about the status of that program and the health of that program.
0: Yeah, moving on here, will uh, some sad news this week? Uh, people who go back to the 1980s in their Gator fandom here uh, will know these names pretty well, but. Bill Carr, former athletic director, passed away. Uh, he also started for the Gators at center. He's an All-American in the mid-1960s, played with Steve Spurrier, his roommate, roomed with Spurrier. That was something I learned this week. Well, I did not know he was the roommate of Steve Spurrier. Uh during Spurrier's Heisman campaign, he was uh Spurrier Center there. So they that, that Gators team in 66, of course, uh Heartbreaker to Georgia, and then they uh end up losing the new, or they end up winning the Orange Bowl. So that was He was part of some good teams under Ray Graves. Uh, Spurrier was quoted this week in Scott Carter's article. His teammates called him Willie C. And he loved his school and everyone around him. Uh, We loved him back. And all of us have many wonderful memories of Bill. So Carr, interesting note, Will here. He became the athletic director in early 1979, shortly after uh, Charlie Pell was hired. And Pell uh, reported directly to the president. Too So that was an unusual arrangement, but the athletic department at the time in the late seventies, and this is something that I I dug into the Charlie Pell years. And this was something I heard that was echoed frequently throughout from those times that there were $700,000 in the red at the gate in the Gators athletic department. And so seven years later, when he stepped down, uh, the financial six situation looked a lot different. They had an operating budget of $13 million. So, yeah, other another thing Bill Carr is known for is ushering Florida through some of those tough times with the NCAA. Uh, he, he was seen as as separate from a lot of that situation with the football program since he he was not involved in the direct reporting there. And uh, former Gators athletic director Jeremy Foley, who worked under Carr at the start of his career, reflected on Carr's impact as well within Carter's article. He said, Bill Carr was a wonderful man and a great gator. I'm very saddened by his passing and wish to send my condolences to his entire family. Bill's fingerprints are all over the foundation of this program, and I had a front row seat to witness his impact and vision during his time as athletic director, especially in the area of facilities. He was one of my first mentors, and he had a huge impact on my career. I was so blessed to be on his staff. I will forever be grateful for the opportunities he gave me as he changed my life by trusting and believing in me at a very young age. So Carr later went to serve as AD at Houston, started a consulting firm with coaching searches, and uh, he was also a big supporter of the Gainesville quarterback club, Will, and you had a chance to meet him.
1: Yeah, actually twice. So I've been down there and talked to the Gainesville quarterback club a couple of times. Um, First time I talked down there, he came up to me. I didn't know who he was Um, on me. Right. I'm, I'm just not aware of the history really for Florida that far back. Um, you know, the, the program, my youth, you know, I was born in 1981. So the 84 season wasn't exactly in my, in my purview, especially since I wasn't born in, in, uh, in Florida, but um, you know, came up to me, he was really complimentary of the talk and then, you know, wanted to help us out, help out the, help out the website in any way he could. And I, I gave me his business card. I emailed him afterwards. He emailed right back words of encouragement. And, you know, it was sort of nice. We had a little bit of a conversation going back and forth. And then you came up with me to the, to the quarterback club a couple of years ago. And he came up and had glowing things to say about Billy Napier at the time he had met him and, and, you know, just in passing and had really nice things to say about him. And I I think, you know, the prevailing thing that you heard from people at the quarterback club and really sort of what, what we experienced, I think is just Bill Carr's a really real genuine guy. He was somebody who was Florida through and through wanted to see Florida do well. Um, and was willing to listen to anybody, regardless of you know whether it was us who are just sort of you know a startup who who you know has maybe a voice on the periphery or you know people who are heavily checked into the program, and you know he was always looking for information, looking for ways to improve, um, and and that was sort of what came across when we talked to him. So you know, really genuine guy, somebody who I think was. Just bought into the Florida program overall. Obviously, lived in Gainesville, um, you know, for for the last years of his life, and and Gainesville was a big part of his life, and contributed a lot to the university, um, not just as the athletic director, but just from the standpoint of being a supporter of the university. You know, you see you see folks who get dismissed from universities, and um, we've seen this the last couple of years. Dan Mullen, um, you know, he he has not shied away from taking shots at, at different things, Florida related. Um, Carr was was released amongst or, you know, let go or resigned amidst some circumstances that could have left him bitter and certainly could have left the program um, pointing fingers. But instead, um, you know, obviously living in Gainesville, being involved with the program was able to sort of bridge that gap and and be a huge supporter of the program overall. So um, a big loss for Gator Nation, big loss for the quarterback club. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad I met him. I'm glad we had that experience and uh, just sort of reinforces everything everybody said about him this week.
0: Yeah, we extend our condolences to the Carr family as well. I believe his son, uh, Scott's the AD down at FIU right now as well. So I know still an active family in, in this field. So, uh, yeah, big time, big time gator passing away there this week. Another gator from that era, Alonzo Johnson, surprisingly passed away. He's an unknown medical issue, apparently 60 years old this past week. Uh, he earned an All-American, an All-SEC selection since 1984, 1985. You just mentioned that 84 team. Well, he was a big part of those teams. He finished his college career with 335 tackles, 55 tackles for a loss and 27 sacks. Ended up going on to play for the Philadelphia Eagles in the NFL. Uh, his impact at Florida was later recognized. By the way, this is from a Scott Carter article as well. FloridaGators.com, Scott Carter. I want to credit that. His impact was later realized or uh, recognized when he was voted onto the Gators all century team and all time team, as well as in his induction into the university of Florida athletic hall of fame as a Gator crate in 2006. So his 27 sacks stood as the program record until Alex Brown finished his career in 2001 with 33 um, and Johnson just had a, had a stellar career here at Florida before going on to the league. Well, I think he only played a couple of years uh, in the NFL, but really remembered uh, by teammate here, Patrick Miller, from fellow teammate from that, that those mid-80s teams. He said, Zoe was the man, and we depended on him a lot. You know, he's probably one of the best. I was talking to Vernell Brown today, and Vernell said, there is no other athlete in America I know that could do the things that Alonzo could do. So surprising passing here, 60 years old, Will. Uh, This is one of those guys from that 1984 team that won the first ever SEC championship in Florida football history. Yeah, you know those '84
1: and '85 teams were really, really good. Obviously, sort of set the stage for Steve Spurrier taking over in late in late 1989. Um, had some had some run-ins with the NCAA, though, with NIL and all the stuff that's going on now. Those run-ins seem kind of like small potatoes. And certainly, the Never SEC, up. you know, if the if you're not cheating, you're not trying. Moniker is 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 really sort of applicable to the SEC. I know Florida has always wanted to be above that, but still, those '84 and '85 teams were really, really good. And you know, Bear Bryant always talked about Florida being a sleeping giant. I think 84 and 85 were really sort of the first time you started to see that and and fans who grew up and and were there at Florida during that time. Certainly, I think, see that as sort of the first, uh, the beginning of the renaissance of what was going to come in the 1990s and then in the 2000s under Urban Meyer. Um, Alonzo Johnson, obviously a big part of that. Like you mentioned, two-time All-American. So he's got two bricks out there Um, in the University of Florida Athletic Hall of Fame ranked in the top 100 Gators of the of the first century by the Gainesville Sun so um you know again for a lot of us especially people my age um you know the University of Florida history kind of starts with Steve Spurrier but that's not really accurate the University of Florida history starts a lot sooner in terms of what was built into um in into the Spurrier era. And I think these guys really sort of paved the way. Alonzo Johnson was a big part of that. And so, um, you know, it's a big loss for the Florida family, big loss for, uh, for those teams specifically. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things time marches on, you know what I mean? And, and it, it does indicate to me, we got to appreciate the guys who are around right now from that 84 team, because we're going to hear more of this. I mean, obviously 60 is young, but it's not beyond the realm of possibilities to pass away at 60. And, and so those guys in the 84 team, if you, know, if you have an opportunity, you know those people, you've got the ability to reach out to them, certainly I think um, telling them that you appreciate what they've done for the university is, is a big deal because that is a big part of Florida's history.
0: I'm glad you said that, Will, because I know it, it seems like from, from an outside perspective – what happened throughout the 90s is we just we, we, we kind of wanted to slowly separate from that those times in the 80s. We wanted to have a distinction, and, and there definitely was in a lot of ways, and and I can understand where in the moment, that might have been the right thing to do to, to create some separation, show that there's a new way of doing things around here in terms of the overall program and how the overall program was run. I can understand the need for that in the moment, but it seems like there's just been a lot of years that have gone by and... I don't feel like that 84 team has really gotten the love and appreciation they deserve. And that's something that uh, it is it is disappointing because you look at it and it, again, not to be morbid with it, but the reality is, is, is you know, nobody's getting younger here. So it's like you got, you can, the NCAA can make whatever ruling they want. The SEC can make whatever ruling they want, but there's no rule saying that. Florida and our, the fans and the program can't express appreciation for what the players on the field accomplished in that season. Especially when you consider the fact: well, you go through, you go through the first twenty years of, of the SEC. Florida did not have a winning record in the in the league in the first twenty years in the conference. And then you go through the fifties, not so pretty. It's very very much in the middle to to the lower third. The sixties, you got Graves coming in. I had some competitive teams, but you had a couple of years where you're actually a serious threat. Didn't quite get it done. Dickey had a couple shots at it, but that's about it in eight seasons and nine seasons at the helm. And then Pel get comes in and those te- those teams actually get it done in 84. And that 85 team is the first team to ever be ranked number one in school history. So a lot of history with, with, with those, with those groups of players that I don't feel like it's fully appreciated in, in, in the story of Florida football.
1: Yeah, I mean, you look at those other those old Southern Cal teams with Reggie Bush, and you know they took away his Heisman and and Ridiculous. And, and different things that yeah. they've done from a sanctions perspective to the program, um, forced USC to separate themselves from Reggie Bush, and in many ways, I think probably is reflective of the same type of thing, right? That that happened to Florida in the late '80s. Now, the issue that I have with it is that the kids who were there. Who enjoyed the games when USC was winning titles and winning the Pac-12? Like it to me, it's not going to diminish the experience because college football is an experience. It's tailgating, it's family, it's mm. it's it's knowing that you're going to call your brother or your dad after the game and talk about it, and that experience you can't take that experience away. So no one who was there in '84, '85 should feel guilty about rooting for the team in '84, '85, and quite honestly, the The toll that the game takes on your body is just as relevant for all the people who are playing in 84 and 85, probably even more so than it is for kids who are playing today. So, um, you know, I, I just look at it and say, yes, we should honor our history regardless of the flaws because there are going to be imperfect people in 1984, and there's going to be imperfect people in 2006, and there's imperfect people in 2024. And and so honor your history from the standpoint of these guys did do something at Florida that other people hadn't done. And it's, it's worth celebrating it and worth at least um, making sure that we mention it because – Florida's program didn't start in 1990, and it didn't jump from Steve Spurrier winning the Heisman to 1990. There's a whole lot of work that had to be done to build. So like you mentioned Carr, getting the athletic department out of debt. That's a huge, huge part of all of what Florida's been able to do because Florida now has a budget that's way bigger than Florida State's. And so there has been, you know, we call Florida the everything school, winning national championships and all sorts of different, different, uh, different sports. That is all possible because the football program drives revenue that then gets distributed amongst all those other sports. And the the genesis of that really is the 1980s, where Florida got its financial ducks in a row and was able to push things forward. So look, you're we stand on the shoulders of people who've come before us. And if we don't acknowledge that we're standing on their shoulders, then it just cheapens it. And so that's not to say that the shoulders aren't flawed, but the shoulders are there and we don't really have a choice. And when it's the university of Florida, um, Bill Carr and, and, and Zoe Johnson, those are guys who contributed. Those are guys whose shoulders the university is standing on. And so we should certainly take time to acknowledge it, say thank you, and certainly send our condolences to the families.
0: That's a great way to wrap that up. Uh, Let's move on here. Well, Yahoo Sports reporting that SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey and Big Ten Commissioner Tony Petiti uh, for the first time have publicly expressed doubts in their commitment to the future of the college football playoff if the leaders can't, quote, unquote, get right a litany of issues when it comes to the – on the heels of an announcement uh, on Friday that the leagues were forming – uh, a joint advisory board to study the future of college athletics. Well, what do you think get right means from the sec and big 10 perspective?
1: Well, first off, nothing says college football more than forming a committee to to study how to get right. Quote unquote <laughs> um, get right is get the hell out of the way and let us pay our players, <laughs> but not get sued. <laughs> so the sec and the big 10 i think have have recognized that the ncaa if it's going to come in and arbitrarily try to enforce nil rules is a hindrance not a help and before it was like hey the ncaa gives us some cover to be able to do this and not necessarily have to give up our tv money but the ncaa is so incompetent that now they've even got tennessee and virginia suing them um there was a temporary restraining order that got that got overruled, but that overruling actually is worse for the NCAA because it basically says that if the NCAA goes after them and then they're found to be restraining trade through antitrust law, then they'll be responsible for monetary damages. Mm. So nothing puckers up the NCAA more than telling them they're going to be responsible for monetary damages. They did that with the Ed O'Bannon trial, realized that was bad, and all of a sudden NCAA football went away uh, because that's how the NCAA reacts to to things as they sort of go into a shell and decide, oh, no, 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 we're not going to have that product. So basically the big 10 and the SEC are saying, no, 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 you don't get to go into a shell here. We're going to take over. And that's what's happening. So we got the A- the AFC and the NFC. One of them's going to snap up uh, UNLV, like I've been talking about for months now. And we're going to have these giant conferences that separate from the schools and basically lease the rights to use the logos and the names and the stadiums and all that sort of stuff. And you're essentially looking at minor league football where they're going to have collective bargaining with the players. And, and that's common, man. It's just a question of when. And when you say get right, what you're really saying is is that there are, there are teams in each conference that don't like that there are other teams in their conferences who have a major competitive advantage. And so they're going to try to restrict that competitive advantage in some capacity.
0: Two words, revenue distribution will. That's what I believe. Get right means revenue distribution. What's our take, and how can we improve it? Uh, there, right now, the contract for the college football playoff runs through twenty twenty five. So there's twenty twenty four and twenty twenty five on the table, and after that, it's wide open. So I, I think these are your two new behemoths, like you call them, the A- NFC and AFC. They're they're flexing their muscles here, and they're 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 letting people know that. We are going to uh, get together on this here, and we're, we're going to get what, what what's coming for us. Because there's there's also guaranteed playoff spots that are up for discussion. Like I know right now, I I believe it's the it's it's, it's uh six what is it uh blah, 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 for the automatic spots? It's the six highest ranked conference champions and the at large spots to the next six highest ranked teams. So like this year, like I believe, uh, I want to say, I want to say Oklahoma was ranked 12th. They would not have gotten into the playoffs. Liberty would have been the the one that to get in over Oklahoma because they were uh, the sixth ranked, highest ranked conference champion. So. Yeah. It's Right now, I think the schools are looking at that. The SEC would probably not t- be too thrilled if Oklahoma was going home and Liberty were getting in. So I, I think there's some of the, those, those types of rules that they, they want to flex their muscles on here before they agree to anything going forward.
1: I mean, I, I think they'll flex there, but I think the reality is, is what they're seeing is that the NCAA is incompetent. That the NCA is like bringing on legislation or not legislation, bringing on um, litigation. That they don't need to bring on by trying to enforce these NIL rules. And so they're trying to get them out because the NIL, I've been saying this now for years, NIL is a way for colleges to not give up their TV revenue to the players because they figured out a way to get their fans to pay for the players. And they have found a new revenue source that I'm not sure they really thought was going to be there. And it's turned into this arms race and with the transfer portal and all that sort of stuff. And you can like it or not like it, but that's the way it is at this point. And With the NCAA coming in and rattling its saber on Florida and Tennessee and and some other schools in terms of, well, you used it as an inducement. Of course you did. Of course it was an inducement. We knew it was going to be inducement the entire time. The only question was, was it an inducement or was it a quote-unquote inducement? Like, you know, is it in the contract and can you prove it? And you're basically just asking people to look the other way and say, no, it's not an inducement. I really am advertising for the pizza place down the street for $30 million. Like, you know, look, it's an inducement. It's pay for play. It always has been ever since this got instituted. And the fact that the, the NCAA is trying to pretend like they can enforce this. Without bringing on litigation, that's going to just destroy the entire model, or at least it's going to completely reset the entire model. And I said this a couple of months ago, the entire strategy for conference commissioners and the NCAA in terms of calling guys student athletes for years, in terms of not having them be qualified as employees, in terms of opening up NIL once it became very, very clear that the Supreme Court was going to rule against them. All of those things tied together have been a way of delaying sharing TV money with the players because the people in charge will be retired by the time they actually have to share TV money with the players. So the sec of big 10 just got together and said, Hey, the NCAA being an umbrella over us used to be protective, but they're so stupid that it's not protective anymore. And we're going to get something shoved right down our throats that we don't like if we don't control it. So what they're going to do is they're essentially going to take over and then they'll own the litigation and they'll get to decide when do they stop and when do they decide to collectively bargain and, and how do they manage the the relationship with the players and all that sort of stuff? And unfortunately, those are some really shrewd business people in those conferences and they're gonna find a way to screw the players is <laughs> what'll end up happening downstream. Um and we saw that very early on with the NFL and the players' union there. The baseball union's always been the strongest union. Um, the NFL, those players have gotten taken advantage of, had, didn't have guaranteed contracts, all those sorts of things, for a really, really long time. Took them a while to really build in um, protections for the players. I'm afraid that'll happen for the players in college, but um, that's sort of the direction we're heading at this point.
0: It'll be interesting to watch. A lot, lot of moving pieces here. Uh, Will, the 49ers are in Vegas for the Super Bowl. Their practice field, they, they said their practice field's not very good this week. Where are they practicing? <laughs> UNLV, baby, UNLV. There you go. There's well, but the UNLV. practice.
1: So no, 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 no. You, you can't you can't do that because the NFL came in and installed a grass field on top of their turf field, and that's why it's too soft. This isn't a UNLV screw up. This is the NFL screwing up. I'm telling you right now, Las Vegas. The college football powers that be are gonna want something in Los Angeles. Oh, guy in
0: Philadelphia bitching about the Super Bowl turf—that's original. Didn't hear that all last February. That's I could no. care less about the Eagles. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Slip all over the place. I enjoy making fun of my friends who, who still complain about it. Hey,
0: this is a true story. When it, when I was in high school, I, I went to I went to Bartram Trail in Jacksonville. The New England Patriots practice at our high school uh, for the Super Bowl. And at the time, we just knew the AFC team was going to practice there, but they actually came in. They redid the whole field at Bartram there, and we played on that field. uh, We played on that field all year, man. So I I can I can tell you the NFL does a good job on their fields, well.
1: Well, I'm glad to to hear you say that. I I had a I had a joke that's inappropriate that I'll hold on to and tell you afterwards.
0: so excited to hear about that uh all right it's the first step to potential employee status for college athletes says Gabe Feldman a sports law professor at Tulane uh this past week here a national labor relations board regional office ruled that Dartmouth basketball our employees of the school clearing the way for an election that would create the first ever labor union for NCAA athletes. Will I'm sure we all have this pegged to start with Dartmouth basketball, but like overall, will this, this is something that is being watched across the country because this is, could be the first case here cutting into the question of amateurism. Uh, to me, I think this is a direction we're heading anyway overall so this could be the first of many this did a similar thing did happen at northwestern but there was a complication with the northwestern case northwestern's a private school things work differently with the public schools in terms of uh being able to call the the athletes employees so the reason why this is relevant here for the Ivy league is that all the Ivy league schools are private. So if you can do this at one private school, you can take this across the board pretty quickly in the Ivy league. Uh, So it's not quite going to translate exactly to like the sec, for example, but it's at least a step in that direction.
1: Yeah. I'm going to be interested to see what happens here. I think uh, one of the things that you risk when you unionize is if you're not actually worth very much, then your employer decides I don't need you anymore, yep. and I'm in, I'm very curious as to how valuable the Ivy League feels that its sports programs are to its overall mission and vision and and where it wants to go. Those places have huge endowments, so the money probably wouldn't be an issue there. Um, the question becomes: Do they value the sports? programs and do they want the headaches that go along with it you know years ago the ivies were dominant when it came to college football and they decided to take a step back for various reasons but mostly academic ones and i can envision a scenario where they would do that again so look if the florida players unionized i think the university would find that it would be very difficult to just say well we're going to disband the football program certainly in alabama that wouldn't happen but i don't know whether that'll happen in the ivies the other interesting thing is look this is new hampshire Um, One of the reasons that the union stuff didn't go with with Northwestern is because you're sitting in Illinois. Um, And so this is kind of a state-by-state type of thing. It's going to have to cascade its whole way through. If you've enjoyed the NIL mess, then this is only going to exacerbate that because the NIL stuff was state-by-state, and now this with the National Labor Relations Board is going to be state-by-state as it goes across. There's some talk that Congress is going to get involved and pass some legislation for this sort of stuff which maybe hastens it and sort of brings stuff in the right place. I got to be honest, if you don't like labor law and you don't like players being paid, or at least you don't like the unevenness of the players being paid right now, you probably just ought to stop watching college football for about five years and come back and everything will be settled and we'll, we'll know where it all sits and where it all settles out. What I can tell you is the lawyers will make an enormous amount of money off of all of this stuff, probably more than the players do. And at the end of the day, we're going to have some arrangement where you've got employees who are getting paid to play. Now the problem is, and this has been something I I think this is even true at Florida is the third string left tackle probably isn't really worth a scholarship. That's probably overpaying when it comes to the amount of money you actually put into that player versus the value you get off on the, the value you get from him on the field. And so that's, That's the thing is that the people who the people, the employees who are the stars, the Patrick Mahomeses of the world of college football, the Tim Tebow's of the world will will clean up when it comes to being an employee of an organization. But the question I have is the kids who have gotten scholarships to maybe a group of five type of place or, you know, kids who are backups or even third string at some of these schools that maybe aren't the Blue Bloods. What happens to them if they're classified as employees? Would you just expand your walk-on program, right? And say, look, it's walk-on, it's volunteer, it's not, um, you know, it's not employee. I have zero doubt that college football programs will find a way to gain an edge by by manipulating the budget that they have and and their employee status to bring in volunteers to help. There, there's going to be a lot of goofy shenanigans that go on over the next few years, but this is the first step, man. Like. It is a big deal to have players classified as employees because for two reasons. One is the compensation aspect of it, but the other is the retirement and the injury protections that go along with that. So you think about the NFL and all the concussions and all this and and all that sort of stuff. Well, that's gonna to start to open up the universities to the liability associated with the an employee getting injured while they're playing a sport. And so, uh, you know, we're going to have to watch that aspect as well, because all the workers comp, the disability, all that sort of stuff, they have they've been able to avoid all of those expenses because there isn't any workman's comp or disability for student athletes. There will be for employees. And so there's a whole list of things that get brought to the table when this happens and and how they manage it and how they how how it rolls across the country is going to be fascinating. I don't think any of us know where it's going to end up, but. It's changing. I mean, I tweeted this the other day that you know it's it, we went from it took fifty years or a hundred years to go from student athlete to NIL. It's taken two and a half years to go from NIL to employee, and so there's there's a lot of change going on in the college football landscape. That's for sure.
0: I think a lot of this needs to come in in house anyway. I don't like all the third party collectives. It's like you and I have said too. The NIL structure is it's a joke right now. Where I I, I do understand that like you just look at thing, throw your hands up and go, it is what it is sometimes at the moment, but even for protection with the players, right? Like that to make sure that players can't get cut off overnight, or there, there's going to be all kinds of stories that come out in the next few years about, you know, maybe a different group didn't live up to their commitments on, on with this player, or that player, or a player took off in the transfer portal after getting X from a certain group. So both sides, it, it really both sides are so vulnerable right now. And I, I don't think the proper representation is out there for these players too. So dealing with the school is probably better than dealing with an external party. And if you have to be classified as employees to make that work, like figure it out. But this is what I absolutely hate. I hate that this conversation is starting with Dartmouth basketball. Because Dartmouth's already made it clear. We lose money on this program. And, and right now, you, you don't go to Dartmouth to play basketball and make a ton of money. You you, you you are good enough to play some basketball and you get an Ivy league education on the side. That's a pretty good deal. You're doing, pretty yeah, you well do it to you make yourself. a ton of
1: money, but not playing
0: basketball. <laughs> you're right. You're doing pretty well for yourself if you're doing that. And I think that this is a conversation that needs to be had in in a high level college men's college basketball specifically and, and high level college football. These that's where this conversation needs to exist, because if you take it to this level to Dartmouth basketball, well, and and and, and no no disrespect to to the fine folks at Dartmouth hoops here. But if you take it to this level, what I worry about is think think about all the programs you have, like the track and field program doesn't make a lot of money. The the, you know, women's softball team at a lot of schools not make a lot of money a lot of these programs are in place because of the money that is shared in revenue from the sports that do make money like football and men's basketball. And that's just the reality of the situation on college campuses, but you're able to put on these sports that lose money because of the sports that make the money. And and, and I think if you turn it into a thing where all the outflow is going, all the expense and the, and is the expense is going even more into these sports from the schools or from whatever source you're just going to look you're going to look at that basketball program that's losing money and say i you know it's a club sport now or it's something like that if if maybe some schools aren't going to want to deal with this And and that's what some there might not be the appetite to support some of these programs and i'm not really talking about basketball might be a bad example but let's say you have a baseball program that's holding on by by a thread you you saw what happened to like I, my understanding with college, I'm not a big wrestling buff. So forgive me if I'm butchering this detail, but my understanding is that a lot more schools had uh, men's college wrestling programs. And then when title IX came in and you had to clear up space for a lot of the women's scholarships, because my understanding of title nine has got to offer equal number of scholarships. And so the women's sports, there's usually more women's sports at the different schools. College wrestling was one of the, the sports on the men's side that took a huge hit because that was an easy program to cut. And that became more of a club sport in a, in a lot of schools. I know there's some schools like Iowa and some of the big 10 schools, that they, they stuck with it, but a lot of schools, it's just a club sport. So are we headed that direction with some of these middle ground sports or Olympic sports? We're, we don't know. It, it could it really change the game across all of the college sports landscape and not just, not just football and basketball. Yeah. I mean, look,
1: I, I think there are concerns anytime there's change. Um, certainly organizations have to make choices of what to do with the revenue. And at this point, colleges have brought in that revenue and have decided to invest in sports that are generally non-revenue generating. This doesn't preclude them from doing that. It just adds a cost center. To the, it just adds a cost center to the university that wasn't there before. And they have to figure out how to manage that. Now, what's how do professional sports leagues manage that? Like the NBA subsidized the WNBA for a very long time. And I don't know if the WNBA is still profitable. I'm not sure. No, but, I, don't,
0: I don't think it's ever been profitable. So I think again, it's completely subsidized by the, the NBA.
1: So again, the NBA has made a business decision that that is a good thing to subsidize whether the reason they're doing it is is up to them but they've made that business decision and so i i expect that to be the same way that colleges are going to operate is they'll make business decisions based on how big the budget is how big the budget has to be for college football or college basketball and then they will navigate funds to the other places as 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 needed. I mean, I think what they what they'll find is a lot of the NIL dollars will probably flow towards those non-revenue generating sports because the people who are giving to endowments, the people who are giving to athletic programs, that's not going to stop. What's going to happen is, is some of the TV revenue, so like the 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 Ivy League right now gets some cut of the NCAA tournament money, right? Because the Ivy participates in that and they get an automatic bid for winning. And mm-hmm. or the winner of the conference gets an automatic bid and then they split that money amongst the conference. Well, should that be spent on basketball alone? Maybe, which means you know, yeah, you're gonna have to decide what what am I going to do with it. but right now that TV money gets diverted in other places. So you got to do better fundraising. I think that's that's the reality. It's just things are going to change and the more you resist the change and go, oh, I wish it would go back to the way it was, the less successful you're going to be because things always change and you sort of have to deal with it. And we talked about it from a recruiting perspective a few weeks ago where Lane Kiffin is putting adapter die on X and he's completely changed his approach, especially to the transfer portal. And I think we're going to see in 2024 that pay off for him. And Whereas there have been some other folks, Billy Napier, one of them, who's been slower to adapt to the changing landscape of college football. And I think that's impacted his program in a way that's negative, at least compared to Kiffin. It's going to be the same way at all of these programs. They're going to have to make decisions. They're going to have to make choices. And let's be honest, go look at the college presidents and the college ADs' salaries and tell me that they shouldn't have to make hard decisions. The reality is they get paid enough money that they should be able to do this, that they're running businesses at this point and they've just got a new line item and that line item is gonna be the expense of the players. But it's not as though they don't have workers comp and disability for all the professors and they don't have those things for all the people who work at, at the food service jobs on campus and the and the utility jobs on campus and, and all the other things that have to be done on campus. They have an entire apparatus to pay employees. They just have to bring these folks into that same apparatus and it's another line item in the budget it they'll figure out how to make it work because there's enough money in sports that they can't give that up so even at the ivy league level and you know look i think the education you get at the ivy league school is worth more than the than the scholarship. not more, more than the scholarship I mean, the scholarship is the education right but the education you get in the ivy league probably is more valuable um just on a dollar for dollar basis than an education at say alabama or Ole miss but it doesn't really matter. I mean, at the end of the day, it's still a line item at Alabama or a line item at, at Dartmouth, and these guys are going to figure out how to deal with it.
0: My gut instinct says the winners of this are going to win big, and just, it's going to be tough for some of them. My gut instinct people says... the short the, end of the stick here. Just, I think, the, I think the administrators
1: and the lawyers are going to make out like bandits, and I think the players are going to have, have face an uphill battle to get what's really theirs, and that's the shame to me, is if the players because they have to unionize state by state because it's like a Dartmouth union and then it'll be a Penn union and then it'll be a Harvard union. There, there won't be a whole lot of collective bargaining power. Like think about the sec, right? If the players at Florida decided they wanted to hold the sec's feet to the fire, the sec will crush them. Like they're going to have to, the players are going to have to band together in a way that gives them equal power to the conferences. And no, I'm just not sure that's going to happen at least not right off the bat.
0: Yeah. But again, but again, you might have the power to do that in a sport like football, but try that in a, in, in another, there's a lot of other sports that go on. I, I'm just thinking about, this is more of a, I know we're a football show, but this is more of like a full well, scale the athletic whole, department. conversation. The whole, la-
1: the whole landscape is changing and it impacts football in a way and impacts Florida in a way that's relevant. I think the, um, the, the thing that I look at is Florida is in a good position from the standpoint of, the SEC is one of the main movers in all of this. I'd be really worried if I was Florida State, and you know, I was texting back and forth my uncle, who's who's a Virginia Tech alum, and obviously I am too. And we're talking about the Hokies, and we're sitting there going, "Geez, Florida State needs to win this lawsuit against the ACC to get out of that grant of rights fee, because all those ACC teams are not going to be wanted." in whatever the big 10 and the sec decide to, to form, which means you're going to have stragglers who are going to try to hold Florida state, hold Virginia tech, hold some of those other programs in. And I'm, I'm concerned that if the ACC just sort of sits there as a separate entity, it's going to turn into like what the big eight was years ago, right? Where it took a long time for anybody other than Oklahoma and Texas to be relevant in that general region of the country. Um, and, you know, we've seen conferences rise and fall. The Big East is a great example of a conference that rose and fell over the course of the last, what, 20 or 30 years and um, 40 years probably now. Uh, but uh, but those things happen. And so the ACC is in danger of that. So that's the good news for Florida is Florida's sitting right in the, the sweet spot of, you know, any like even for Rutgers. Rutgers is in a much better position right now than Florida State. Rutgers is in a much better position than NC State or North Carolina just because of the way the contract's set up and because Rutgers is in the Big Ten. Maryland, same way, getting out of the ACC years ago to get into the Big Ten is going to be the best thing they ever did for their program. And, uh, you know, so again, when we talk about this, the whole landscape's changing, but thankfully Florida's in a position to be able to take advantage and be, be standing with the big boys when when everything settles.
0: A lot of moving and shaking, like you said get ready for this ride for the next several years as if it's not already been a ride for the last several years. It, it's going to be the decade. Let's just chalk it up to, to the rest of the decade here before you see any sense of uh settling in, but a lot of questions to be answered for 2026 and beyond college sports. And uh, I think this, this uh, labor discussion is going to be a big part of it. Uh, that's all we got for tonight, everybody. We appreciate you tuning in to another episode of stand up and holler. Uh, will you want to give the folks another, uh, another magazine reminder here?
1: Yeah. If you're interested in advertising, will at readingreaction.com. Happy to send you a media kit. Happy to talk to you specifically about what your needs are and, uh, make something work. And, and hopefully, uh, some, some folks we've already had plenty of people reach out to us. We appreciate the people who already have, but we've still got space and, uh, you know, Obviously, It's going to be a Father's Day gift that a lot of people are going to buy, and we're going to be investing on advertising, investing on printing, investing in a lot of different places to make sure this reaches the maximum number of people possible. We're excited about that distribution, but uh, we want to bring along some people who are hardcore Gator fans and hardcore Read and Reaction fans as well. We think we've got something in this magazine that's differentiated. We think we've got a differentiated voice in the marketplace, and uh, so you know, if you've got a business that you want to differentiate, we think this is a way for you to do that, so we'd appreciate it you reaching out again will at readingreaction.com or you can get me at will miles sec on x and uh, and reach out there as well
0: thank you for tuning in everybody enjoy your week for will miles i'm nick newton go gators
1: hey everybody thanks for listening to stand up and holler if you're interested in more information from me and nick you can go over to readingreaction.com you can like and subscribe our youtube channel here at reading reaction Or you can go to patreon.com slash read and reaction to support us, get extra information, and we do ask anything over there every once in a while as well. So check us out. Thanks for listening.